Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. Um, this episode we have Britain's strictest head teacher, Catherine Burbell Singh, who talks to us about her journey um, into to, to starting a new school and starting a new school in an inner city London, and um, the difficulty and the challenges that inner city London schools have and why she runs her school the way she does. Um, yeah, she, she's an amazing woman, really passionate about education and yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the Teacher's Point of View podcast. I'm so delighted, obviously, you've come on. And um, I mean, congratulations on your CVE this year. I mean, what an achievement that is. And uh, obviously, you've had quite a remarkable career in, in education. And uh, you're quite an, a bit like a voice in, on, on social media as well. I mean, if you could just start us off with kind of introducing yourself and your journey into teaching, what made you become a teacher and where you're at now, that'd be great. Yeah, those are our pips. Kids are just moving lessons now. So, um, but you won't hear them because, of course, our our corridors are silent, which of course we're well for, so you won't hear a thing. Um, so in terms of me, well, um, I'm a headmistress of Michaela Community School. We are in Wembley Park. We've got now a full school. We opened in 2014 uh, with just year seven. And now we've got a full school of about 800 children. That includes our sixth form. And um, which is really exciting because this is the first time right now our children are getting offers through to go to various universities. So we're excited about that. And um, in terms of my own career, well, I've, I've always been in teaching and um, always worked in the inner city in London, always wanted to work with deprived children from challenging backgrounds and so on. Um, and so it's what I'm good at now. You know, I, I, I mean, I have lots of respect for people who teach in the private sector and so on, but I'm not sure I could do it just because it's a completely different thing. Um, and so I was, you know, a normal teacher and then I went to um, head of department and then I went to assistant head and deputy head and then eventually, I, you know, I, I'm here. And of course, I um, co-founded the school uh, with, uh, well, the steering group, which then became the board of governors. Um, and we have always positioned ourselves as being very different as a school. Uh, we are, um, you know, we're very traditional. So... Uh, when we say that, you know, the teacher stands at the front of the classroom and the desks are in rows, and that's the case in every single classroom. Uh, we believe very much in making knowledge central uh, to the lesson, uh, that memories should be part of what we're trying to get the kids to do. It's not, only, it's not the only thing we want them to do, but part of it is for them to remember what we teach them. And then um, in, in addition to that, I'd say we're traditional in terms of the way we treat behavior. So uh, we have very high standards. We expect the children to move very quickly between lessons. And we do that silently. I mean, I say silently. We say good morning, good afternoon to each other. Um, but apart from that, um, it's, it's, it's not the normal long chit chat where you lose five to 10 minutes perhaps in transitioning. It's one and a half minutes, you know, and everyone zooms to the next lesson, which I think is really important, especially when you're trying to catch up children who... Um, do come from deprived backgrounds, so they might have the reading age of a six-year-old when they're joining at 11 years old, and you want to try and catch them up. So, uh, yeah, that's what we do in terms of behavior. And in terms of the ethos of the school, I'd say I always describe uh, our ethos as relatively small C conservative. So what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we teach the children gratitude. We teach the children um, the adult is the authority. Uh, and the adults are in charge. Um, we don't have, for instance, in other schools, you might have the student council 
um, being on the panel to decide who should become deputy head and that sort of thing. Uh, we would never do that here. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, so the various, the, the, the cultural side of things here in school is, um, we believe in personal responsibility. We believe in duty towards others, uh, a sense of obligation. Uh, and these are things that we narrate to the children all the time. So, um, that's how we're different. Uh, although, you know, there are other schools that have bits of what we do. Um, so I wouldn't say, you know, no, no other school is like us at all. Uh, but, um, I suppose putting all those things together, uh, is what makes us so different that we end up with 600 visitors every year, um, normally from teaching from across the world, although mainly in Britain, uh, who come here to see what we do because it's, mm -hmm. I suppose, exciting to see something different. Yeah, I mean, you, you obviously are named as the as Britain's strictest head teacher, aren't you? I mean, like, how did that come about? Obviously, you founded the school in 2014. I mean, did you have this vision that you were going to be named as the, as Britain's strictest head teacher? No, it was the Sunday Times that came in once and did an article and they called me the strictest head teacher. I don't even know. They might have even just called me the strictest teacher. I don't know. But in any case, that has now been the name that people then say, which is all a bit silly. Because I think people <laughs> imagine that I march around the corridors kind of shouting at children and being me. And, um, you know, recently on Twitter, people were talking about um, uh, a teacher who had uh, cut a child's headphones. And, uh, and then people, I suppose, who were supportive of me were saying, imagine if Catherine Birbelsing had done this, there would be outrage. And I was thinking, why would I cut a pair of headphones? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I, you know, and then I thought, well, clearly people imagine that I march around going, right, who am I going to get today? Right, you know, I'm this evil woman kind of <laughs> marching around looking for small children to do horrible things to. I mean, I, I, I'm not particularly strict, as it were. I, I just have systems that we follow through on. That's all. I mean, <laughs> that's all that happens. Um, I mean, some days I may not even leave my office, uh, <laughs> you know, so I can't be particularly strict because I'm not even in the school, you know, I mean, um, but what I, what I do is follow through and I always back the teachers. So it isn't the case that teachers are undermined by the systems of the school or feel that a child should be given a detention and then that detention is taken away or that a deputy head pulls a child out of a classroom and nothing happens with him or that worst He's even worse. He's, he's put back in the classroom, which undermines the teacher. That sort of thing just doesn't happen here. So I, I don't know when people say I'm strict, I think all they mean is that I try and make sure that our staff are consistent, that we all deliver in a similar kind of way. And I say similar, so we're all traditional in our manner. You know, we all have similar expectations of the children and that we would all hand out demerits for similar sorts of things. So I'd say that one of the big problems in schools is that in, you know, Mrs. Lesson, uh, she gives out demerits and detentions for turning around and for chatting and for um, any kind of disruption. Whereas perhaps in Sir's lesson, he allows that sort of behavior and only gives a demerit and a detention when uh, the child is speaking really loudly or when the child gets up out of his chair or that sort of thing. And, and that, I would say that that uh, distinction between the two classes, let alone the kind of eight, nine classrooms that they might have to go through in the day, um, if there are differences and discrepancies, children find that really difficult to handle. 
and I don't think that it, it benefits them. They struggle to, um, and in particular, the, 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 the lower sets really struggle. So the, the, the top sets might, might be able to cope with that. The lower the set you're in, the more difficult it is to cope with all of that change. Children like predictability. They, they feel safe when they know what's coming, you know? And um, it therefore helps to have centralized behavior systems, is what I would say. That apparently makes me the strictest headmistress in Britain. <laughs> I don't really know why, but that, that, that's what they say. Do you think that that title comes with um, a certain, like, like it, people perceiving you in a certain way? Like, do you feel like that naturally when you walk into a, into a room when there's a lot of educators, that, that, that naturally that, that title will give you uh, certain people to look at you in a, in a different way? Um... I don't know. Do people? Th- I don't know. You would know better than I do what people think of me. I mean, I don't know. I think when people meet me, if they know of me, then there's just a sense of, oh my goodness, it's her, you know, <laughs> because I'm known. You know, I don't know if they necessarily think there's the strictest headmistress in Britain. Um, <laughs> when people talk about me in the news, or if I meet people, uh, you know, I once met Amber, Amber Rudd. And she, when she came up to me, she said, you're that headmistress, aren't you? <laughs> That's what she said. She didn't say, you're the strictest headmistress. <laughs> she just said, you're that headmistress. So, you know, people know me as that headmistress. I mean, sometimes I go to a restaurant, I go somewhere, whatever it is, and I meet some random person and they'll say, you're that headmistress. And I say, yes, I'm that headmistress, <laughs> you know. So I think that's what I'm known for. I think perhaps in teaching people who are teachers, I don't know if they think that. I think they think that's that weird school. You know, that's that Michaela school. And I don't know very much about it, but um, it's weird. And uh, I'm not sure what I think about it because I don't know enough about it, actually, which is why I always say to people, uh, get on our website, sign up, come and visit us. I mean, right now we're not doing visits, but normally, you know, we get all these visitors in and then people get to see what they think. And some people come and they think it's great. Other people think, oh, like this, not so sure about that. And that's fine. I mean, I don't expect everybody to love everything here. you know, lots of people have taken lots of ideas from what we do. We have two books that we've written. The most recent one is called The Power of Culture. And uh, I know a lot of people have found those really inspiring and have taken lots of ideas and have implemented them either in their schools or in their classrooms. So it, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to contribute to the wider uh, sphere in education as we, as we are doing and have done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just playing devil's advocate here. Um, now, ultimately, some people, some educators would would sort of stand with the view that if you're if you're too regimented or if you're if you're too strict in some respects, um, you're you're kind of you're you're not setting children up for life in the respect to um, because life isn't planned and it isn't as simple and it obviously is not as structured as obviously you might have at uh, Michaela. So, I mean, I mean, what's your argument against that? Because ultimately, you have a certain way you're doing things and you. You're quite passionate about it, aren't you? Yeah, I think that's just to misunderstand how to get children ready for life. So I think it's our role as adults to help them instill habits in themselves uh, so that later it just becomes part of who they are. So um, when you want to teach a child how to cross the street, you don't just leave a young child. You don't just leave him on the sidewalk and say, okay, go to it. You, Because if you did that, he'd run out in the street and he would get hit by a car. What you do is you hold his hand and you take him across time after time after time 
you always walk to the end of the road and you say, now we're at the corner or you go to the zebra crossing and you explain about the zebra crossing and over and over and over again, you drill him, right? You drill him in crossing the road at the zebra crossing while holding his hand. And that holding his hand is scaffolding, right? And the scaffolding of explaining the zebra crossing, taking him to the corner of the road, taking him to the zebra crossing over and over again is the same, let's say, in the way that you might drill their times tables. And when you're drilling their times tables, let's say you count by twos first, and then you start doing, you know, and then eventually you do the, you know, two times two and so on. So you scaffold and you do it over and over and over again until eventually you let them go and they can do it on their own. So it's very similar with everything else when it comes to the times tables or when it comes to them remembering their equipment, for instance. So our year sevens, they find it really difficult to remember their equipment because they are year seven. By the time they get to year 11, it's so ingrained in them. It's just part of who they are. They're no longer bringing the equipment in because they fear getting the detention. They bring the equipment in because that's just who they are. <laughs> um, similarly, you know, homework, for instance, spending the required amount of time on their homework. When they're in year seven, they struggle, but then as they go through the systems, they get better at it. Now, of course, some kids are better than others. And some kids perhaps never acquire those habits because they're really naughty. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then there are other kids who within three or four weeks at the school end up being what we call top of the pyramid. And they go right to the top with most of these characteristics. So there's lots of things you're trying to teach them to be on time, to sit properly on a chair, to always bring your equipment, to look smart. I would say, for instance, looking smart and having their ties to the top and shirts tucked in. That's something I'd say within weeks, all of our children learn and they just do it automatically. They don't think about it. So they're not, for instance, arriving at the school gate, desperately trying to fix their ties and tucking their shirts in because they're worried they're going to get detention. They just do it naturally. And so when they go for that interview later on, when they're 17, 18 for university or for a job or whatever it is, they're not having to remember all of these things. They're not having to think, okay, got to remember to look smart. How do I look smart? How do I do that? Okay. Now I've got to remember, make sure I take a pen with me, make sure that I shake their hand, make sure that I look them in the eye. Because for five, seven years, we've been telling them eye contact, eye contact. We've been telling them projection. When you talk, you need to project. We've been telling them shake a hand, look in the eye, all of this sort of thing. We've been teaching them. So it's just become part of who they are. So when people say, oh, you know, life isn't like that. Yeah, that's right. It's not like that. That's why we have to use the opportunity that we have of school <laughs> to be able to teach them how to survive in life. Because if we just throw them into the deep end, um, I think they drown. I think many of them drown. A few of them survive, of course. Um, but I think lots of them don't, don't end up accomplishing anywhere near as much as they could had we understood this fundamental different way of thinking when it comes to how children uh, develop habits that will then last a lifetime. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I, I find, obviously, I've been following you quite a long time and I find you quite remarkable, if I'm quite honest with you. I think you're such an, you're an advocate for, for education. I mean, like not everyone might agree with everything you do, but I think what, like you, what I really like about you is obviously the fact that you work with like deprived areas, you know, like it's not about you kind of just like picking like the best areas and then like getting brilliant children. Like you're actually working with children from deprived areas. And um, we look around across the country, like you've only opened the school like six years ago and for it to be one of the top performing schools. I mean, like where did this like philosophy of education of how you do things come from? Like, was it, was it learned from like a previous educator that you inspired to be like, or did it, is it just something that you learned over time? 
over time. So just in my own classroom and then running a department, turning around failing departments, um, you know, taking on um, behavior at senior team level and, and being in schools where, you know, things were absolutely chaotic and then putting in systems that were centralized and watching the school change, <laughs> you know, uh, and not just me, watching other people do it. It, it. You know, a lot of the stuff that we do isn't necessarily groundbreaking, especially the behavior stuff. I mean, the behavior stuff, anyone who wants to turn around a failing school essentially takes the behavior model that we have, and it's not our behavior model. It's, it's a behavior model that you'll find in lots of schools. They take that behavior model and they put it in the school and they turn it around and make it better. So in a way, it's not really that controversial. The thing that we do that people do find controversial is the way in which we teach. Um, and so, you know, people say the strictest headmistress, they say that in the newspaper because that sells and normal people who aren't teachers get that right? They get the idea of strictest headmistress. <laughs> they don't get the idea of deaths and rows, teaching from the front, explicit teaching, direct instruction. They don't understand any of that talk. That doesn't, you know, the Sunday Times is not going to talk about that because it doesn't make any sense to people who aren't teachers. So that's the stuff that we do that's most controversial. And um, Sorry, just to interrupt there. I mean, it is controversial because even in PGCE, in your PGCE, you, you're not taught to stand at the front. You're, you're taught to be animated, walk around and like check kids' progress. So you, you're actually doing a completely different what like trainees get taught in, during the teacher training year, don't you? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So we have to untrain everyone here from what they've been taught to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're teaching them a Kayla way. Um, and I say everyone, you know, I have a teacher who's just joined She's been teaching about 10 years and she's had quite an easy time adapting. And I asked her, you know, how come you've had such an easy time? And she said, well, you know, the thing is, is that the stuff we do here isn't that different to what I've always done. <laughs> and so there are teachers out there who have always taught in this way. It's just that they're spread out all over the place. Um, in this school, they're all in one building. <laughs> um, so, you know, and she, for instance, one of the things we all do is three, two, one and slant. And um, that's the Doug Lamov teach like a champion technique and, uh, you know, slanting, you know, sit up straight, listen, all that stuff. But, you know, the most important bit of it really is that, that their hands are there. And the reason why you have their hands there and they're sitting up straight, backs are straight and so on. And the reason why you want the hands there is because if you just ask them to sit up straight then their hands go under the table and then they're doing all sorts of things to their partner next door <laughs> and they're whacking so-and-so because their hands are free. Here they do this really easy. Now, you know, if you want a story, people then say, oh, look, they are acting like they're in the army. Look how strict yeah. it is. Well, actually, it's just a practical point that if you want to keep naughty children from bothering each other, you make sure you see their hands. That's all. Um, it's not that, it, you know, we love children. That's why we do it, because we want them to succeed. And of course, they do succeed. You know, you come here and you see really happy children who are excited to be in school who will narrate to you themselves, oh, I found it a bit difficult when I first came, but then I got used to it and I'm so pleased I'm here because I feel safe. I can put my hands up in lessons and not feel I'm going to get bullied, that um, I, 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 I can learn loads and, and I can achieve. And I always say that children go to school to learn. That's the main reason why they go. Um, and if they learn loads, they'll be happy. Well, that's what happens here. The children aren't miserable because the corridors are silent. They don't care. They're quite happy to walk quickly to the lessons and get into the next lesson. I mean, uh, if you work here, nobody here kind of gets why people criticize us on the outside because everything goes so well here. So we sort of think, well, well what's the problem? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's genuinely kind of baffling. 
but um you know i suppose some people don't really understand what we do uh some people who have never visited have decided that it, we're obviously evil and <laughs> want that idea i mean i don't know like i'm not saying that everybody has to do what we do um i'm saying if you want come take some ideas take them back to your school and use them obviously different contexts are different so you know, I went to visit this private girls' school in North London once, and all the girls, they don't need silent corridors. It would be a bit weird if they had silent corridors. There's no need for them. But we're in the inner city with a really tough intake. <laughs> um, and I can tell you from the many years that I've been working in the inner city that when you don't have uh, corridors that are orderly, um, they end up bashing their heads into the walls. There are fights. There are all sorts of problems. Now, People might then say, well, why don't you just keep them orderly? Why do you have to go to the extreme of having them silent? Well, the thing is, I tell you about silence, is that it's really easy to monitor, for all the teachers to monitor. So all the teachers know, well, when I'm on duty, I just, the children need to be silent. And they just say good morning and good afternoon, and that's it. If, on the other hand, you need them to just keep it quiet while they're chatting, what's quiet? Quiet to teacher X is different from quiet to teacher Y. And when do they give the demerit? And then things become unraveled. They become unfair. You will never see children here saying, that's not fair. He didn't get that punishment, whereas I did. Never happens. Or everything is fair here. And I think children have a real heightened sense of what is unfair and fair. And one thing that people talk about with us is that our children have real buy-in for what we do. They really believe in the school and they believe in what we do for them. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is that they feel we're very fair with them and they don't feel that they're being, um, uh, that they're being punished for things that they haven't done. Um, they get it and they believe in it. And I think it's because it's fair. And the only way systems can be fair in a school is if the senior team make it so that it's possible for all teachers to deliver the same thing, whether they're in the corridors or in the classroom. And that means your systems need to be simple they need to be easy to implement. So um, we have um, our, the, the, you know, our, our, our a SIM, you know, whatever you want to call it, that you put all the information in on, on, online. It's called the reward system by a company called Sixth Domain. It was set up by a teacher. So there are very few clicks that the teachers have to do. That's huge. Few clicks means the teachers are more likely to log the demerits and log the detentions. We have ideas of children themselves. They write down the merits and the demerits for the teacher in the classroom. So it's possible for the teacher to say merit there, demerit there, and so on, because the child is then writing them down. So we've made it so that there are as many systems as possible that are there to support the teacher so that he and she are able across the classroom, or across the school, I should say, to do similar things. Um, because some teachers find it easier to be able to hand out demerits and detentions, and some find it uh, more difficult. Um, so, and, and we're asking quite a lot. We're not just asking that you use demerits and detentions. I expect, uh, you know, I say to staff that I'm expecting for every demerit that you give, that you should give four or five merits. That should be the ratio. So they have to be handing out quite a lot of merits as well. <laughs> There's a lot of work to be done in the lesson, right? So that's why the child is there in noting them down. So, um, and that's why we have a system which only has a few clicks so that they can put the stuff in quite quickly. So all of this stuff, it kind of connects so that the, chil the, the children are well supported to behave by their teachers. 
who are well supported by senior management <laughs> um, and the systems. And so we are all one big team that are able to deliver, to deliver together, you know, and that's hard to explain even on a podcast. Um, it's certainly impossible to explain in a tweet. Um, we've tried to explain it in our book, but I always say to people, just come and see. I think that's always best because um, you, you sort of see the magic then when you come and I can't put magic into the book and I can't even tell you about it here. You've just got to see it. And then you just see the magic at work and you think, gosh, actually, I remember a guy came once, uh, he was an Ofsted inspector actually. And he was saying, um, uh, I mean, he wasn't offsetting us. He just happened to be an Ofsted inspector. And, um, he was saying to me how he really didn't like the school. He didn't like the silence. He didn't like the order. He really made him uncomfortable, you know, instinctively. Um, and it's funny because he came to visit us a few times after that over a period of a couple of years. And after a couple of years, having visited about four times, he totally changed his mind and thought the place was extraordinary. And sometimes it takes people time to change their minds, you know, and what I'd ask your viewers, I suppose, is just to keep an open mind. Um, we love children. You know, I don't come into school every day at six thirty, seven o'clock in order to be miserable and horrible to children. <laughs> I do it because I want to make a difference to their lives. And the reason we make the arguments we do and uh, try and put forward a different point of view is because we're trying to question the status quo. We're trying to say, look, maybe there are different options. Maybe there's something that you could do differently here. Um, and maybe you'd get more out of your children for doing so. That, that's all I want to see is more children doing better, really. And yeah. um, that's why we, you know, we have all these visitors in. We, we don't have to. We have them in because we want to be open and we want to show people what's possible, really. Um, and I know how grateful those people are. So, you know, I, you know, as I say, on the website, you just sign up, come in and, um, and see what we do. Amazing. Uh, like in, t- in 2014, um, obviously, you decided to start a brand new school opposed to just take a headship in, in another school. I mean, what was, what was the reason behind that? Like, why, why didn't you just take a headship role in another school? Uh, because I gave the speech at the Conservative Party conference in 2010. And then I was told I'd never teach in a state school again. <laughs> so I didn't have any choice. So I did think about going to the private sector. I did. Um, and I, I visited a few. And I thought, you know, I have all the respects in the world for my colleagues out there who teach in the private sector, but it's just not for me. You know, I love, I love inner city kids is what I've always done, you know? And so I thought, and it's what I know. I know these kids. I know, I know how to get learning. I know how to get the corridors working. It's what I say to you about the private girls school that I went. They don't need silent corridors. They need something else. And I'm really pleased that those colleagues know better than I do what they need. And so they must do what's right for them. (laughs) Um, I just know what works for us here. This is what I've done all my life, you know? So I had to get back into city teaching. I was told I would never work in the state sector again. And um, and so... It's just, just very quickly, let's talk about that because you obviously, I mean, in 2010, you did give that speech, right? And you basically said the education system is broken. The poor will never get out of being poor because of the way that the education system is run, right? I mean, I mean, I don't disagree with that, though. I mean, I know, obviously, you were kind of scrutinised quite heavily for that. and But, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I, I do feel like the system is broken. I do feel like uh, disadvantaged children, and especially like in COVID, you can see the high, how much is highlighted now, the, the gap between the advantage and the disadvantage. Um, 
I mean, I, I completely agree with what what you were saying. So I find it quite remarkable that you were obviously put under so much scrutiny. But I mean, in some respects, would you say that kind of shaped your career? Well, you know, I'd always wanted to take a failing school and turn it around. That was always my hope and you know my my goal in life. And so I haven't done that. Perhaps I'll still do that. I I took a different route and ended up setting up this school and and doing things differently this way. I mean, yes, had it not been for that speech and so on, my life wouldn't have been turned upside down, but it was a very difficult time. You know, I got ill. I've had all sorts of vitriol sent my way. I've had death threats. I've had all sorts of threats of violence, et cetera. I mean, nowadays it's fine. But once upon a time, I would leave school in the evenings and think, you know, I'd always have one eye over my shoulder. I didn't know who was following me. You know, I, I was always a bit worried. So there were tough times. but like with anything, every cloud has a silver lining and you make the most of things. And if you're resilient, you know, it's one of the things I always say to the kids, you know, they knock me down here, they knock me down there, you know, at assembly. And I say, but each time you pick yourself up and you keep on going. And that was what I did. So yeah, from that, from, from that perspective, I, I suppose it was good. And also we've got this wonderful school now and I'm thrilled about it. Um, but I suppose I would have just done something different if I hadn't given that speech. But, you know, here we are. And it is very exciting to be part of, um, to be part of what I would say is an educational revolution that's happening at the moment. I mean, Michaela isn't just standing out there on its own. There are other schools uh, doing similar sorts of things to us. Uh, there are other people out there who believe in the, 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 the kind of educational philosophy that I outlined earlier. Um, there, there's, there's lots happening. And I, I do think in 50 years, you know, people will write books about this time now from 2010 to, to now and perhaps beyond about how there really was a revolution in education and what happens in schools uh, across the country. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, you talk about this revolution and I think there, there needs to be some sort of revolution in education in England, doesn't there? Because there is there is this, um, I feel like there's this massive lack of trust between politicians and the teaching profession. Um, and and I think like one, one thing that Phil Sharon said, I don't know if you know him, but he's like retired, semi-retired head teacher now. But he, he said one of the biggest problems is there's too, there's too many voices in the unions and like the, the politicians can kind of just play play the unions off of each other and almost, you know. Um, I mean, it, is there, a, is there a big element of a lack of trust causing the, the system to be broken within, within the UK? Um, I don't think it has to do with politicians. Um, I think politicians often, not always, but often don't necessarily know what they're talking about when it comes to education, because why would they? I mean, they're not experts like teachers. Um, but I don't... I, I think that it's the wrong way. So when you just said about that comment that the unions, I think too often in teaching, we, we see this as a fight between the unions and the politicians. And we teachers are on the side of the unions and the unions are out there to fight for us. And um, I just think it's the wrong way to see things. I mean, why are we fighting? Why don't we just try and get good ideas happening in our classrooms and in our schools? I mean, I don't really care what the politicians are saying. Um, forget about them. We need to do what's right in our classrooms. Um, and that's what matters. So, and I mean, people might say, oh, well, it's easy for you, you know, you, you, you're you the head, so you can just do that. But I can tell you, I've, I've had my struggles <laughs> in order to make this happen. Um, I would just say as advice to people that you need to just keep going and you need to do what you believe in and you need to, 
you need to always be willing to question what you're doing because you might be wrong. (laughs) So try out different things. If you go and visit a school or you see a different classroom and you think that's going really well, then copy what's going on in that classroom. Um, If, you know, another teacher has certain conversations with kids and they seem to work really well, well, copy their conversational style. Think about what they're doing. Break it down. Oh, look, actually, they've managed to get that child on side. How have they done that? How have they built that relationship with that child? Um, how, have they, how have they persuaded them that, you know, that they ought to do X, Y, and Z? You know, like, these are, if we spend all our time thinking about the fight, fight, fight with the politicians, we are distracting ourselves from what really matters, which is, well, are there good or bad ideas going on in our classroom? Have we got the right culture in our school? Have we um, got systems of behavior that are going to support the teachers? And if you're not in a member of, member of senior team and you're a teacher, okay, well, maybe you don't have great behavior systems that are going to support you, but you can still do it on your own. You can. You can create systems in your own classroom, which are entirely consistent in your classroom. And if you're a head of department, you can create a behavior system that's, that's consistent across your department. And, and when we say consistent, what that means is you always follow through. You always, when you say to the children, this is what's going to happen if you do X, you make sure that's going to happen. Um, and if it means going to the classroom and pulling them out at the end of the day so that you pull them down to your detention, or if it means ringing home, I used to spend, I used to leave an hour at the end when I was a teacher, I'd leave an hour at the end of every school day and I'd just sit there ringing home for various different kids. And I had a whole load of gold stars and I'd put the gold stars on their work and I would ring up the parents sometimes to say something good, not just bad, you know? And I would get the parents on side and get the kids on side. There are ways of doing this. Now, I, the way I'm saying, well, everything in my advice there isn't... Um, well, I, I've never made it up. I mean, I learned that from somebody else. You know, I mean, there are lots of people who I've copied all my life. You know, um, this is all stuff that we can all learn from each other, and that's what matters—not what the politicians are doing. Ignore them and just get on with the, the work. The work on the ground is what I would say. Of course, I completely get that. But effectively, in some respects, the government are are the teaching profession's employers, aren't they? And um, you kind of. In some respects, and I think from a public view, we'll see like the government are giving instructions to the teaching profession, and almost in some respects, like the public will see you as robots. You just you just do as you're told, almost, don't you? I mean, that's not the case. Obviously, I know that, but I mean, for for the public, that that kind of comes across sometimes, and unfortunately, that's the way the media portrays it. Unfortunately, um, but I, I mean, like, look, I think I think yeah. some of what I've spoken. But what you're saying there, which is a very good point which is that uh, too often the public don't respect teachers. And I think that's true. And I think it's very wrong. And I don't think they understand just how difficult teaching is, uh, not just because there's poor behavior, but because it's just really hard teaching a good lesson. And I do wish in many ways that the entire public were forced to do teaching for a year (laughs) so that they could understand how hard it is to be a teacher Um, because they're far too critical and they have absolutely no idea what, what teachers have to go through. So, no, I agree with you. And I also agree that the media are quite happy to jump on, you know, this school is doing this and school bans child for haircut or whatever it is. You know, the Daily Mail is always coming out with these ridiculous stories. Um, I, I totally agree. But we have to ignore it as teachers. And the reason we have to ignore it is that if you allow yourself to be pulled down by all that negativity and you allow yourself to be distracted by that and arguing all the time about that, 
you're, you're not going to perfect your job and you're not going to do the best by the children. So you just need to ignore it. That's what I've done. And I've had far more vitriol sent my way than most teachers and, um, and, and far more written about me that's been, a, you know, attacking than either the Daily Mail might do about schools generally. And the way that I've survived is I always say blinkers on, right? You know, just like the horse and you're there and you just, you see your go and you go for it. And it doesn't matter what they throw at you. And they might throw a whole bunch of things. And maybe you have, I say, tin caps on, blinkers on, go. <laughs> and that's what you do. Because otherwise you'll get, you'll get distracted by fight over here, fight over there. And then meanwhile, oh, wait, I wanted to teach him how to, how to do algebra, but I can't now because he's gone. You know, that's, that's what I'd say. Of course. I, I think, look, I mean, I know you, you're saying that, but I mean, schools aren't given full autonomy of how they teach their kids. I, I think obviously you're still kind of given a certain curriculum that you've got to follow. You've got to adhere to certain standards and, and get your kids up to a certain point. And, and ultimately your kids are going to be graded and assessed compared to other children in, across the country. So, but I mean, I think one of the, one of the key things at the moment is, um, well, key topics at the moment is, well, how can you compare like inner city schools to like rural schools? Like are there, are there, um, can you expect the same from it, from it, like children that have come from completely non-mixed areas, non-deprived areas to children that have come from like really harsh deprived areas? I mean, like what, I mean, obviously you need to assess children in some way when they apply for jobs, how are you else you're going to assess them? So, I mean, what's the answer? Like, do you, do you feel like that, that is the right way of doing things? Well, progress eight as a, as a method to judge schools, uh, is one way of trying to make that a little bit more fair. Um, because progress eight is judging their progress from key stage three to key stage four, as opposed to just judging their attainment. Um, and so that makes a real difference, uh, because if you're just judging their attainment, you're right that, um, depending on your intake, (laughs) uh, an easier intake will do a lot better in terms of attainment than uh, a harder intake. Whereas progress eight is judging how far the school the, the, the impact the school has had on those children from key stage two to key stage four. Um, so I quite like progress eight, although I would, um, I, I, I still think there is truth to what you say, because it, in the more difficult schools, it is still just more difficult. It's still more difficult to have impact <laughs> um, because you're just fighting many more problems that the children have, um, you know, at home, in the street, whatever, et cetera. Um, so it is still more difficult. But I think Progress 8 is certainly the most fair system that we've had so far. You know, when I think about, you know, it used to be five GCSEs, then it was five GCSEs, including English and maths. And I mean, there's been a whole variety of different things in which we've been judged by. I think Progress 8 is probably the best. Um, but as you say, it can't be all completely fair because it's really hard <laughs> to, uh, to make it perfectly fair. But we've got to have something to judge schools by. So I, 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 I sort of think that's fine. Um, if anyone were to come up with a better way of judging schools, then great. I'm not, I'm not adverse to hearing of other ideas. You know, Progress 8 wasn't my idea. Um, but I think it's probably the best thing that, that we've had so far, really. Yeah, I mean, like, would you still agree that it needs to be followed through with Progress 8 like for this year's exams because I mean ultimately there's going to be a lot of kids that have only had access to one hot meal a day and that's probably at school um, no access to Wi-Fi no laptops no resources I self-isolating teacher self-isolating compared to maybe children that haven't had those issues you know um, is it is it fair to, to do exams this year? 
okay, well, you were asking two different things there. So should Progress A happen this year and schools be judged by that? I mean, it's not happening. And I think it's right that it shouldn't happen because schools are under an enormous pressure trying to deliver in these circumstances. And it would be ridiculous for us to have Progress 8. So I think it's quite right that we don't have Progress 8 this year. Whether or not exams should go ahead. Look, I do understand the people who are anti-exams. I think whenever I say that, you know, various kind of traditionalists look at me, you know, in horror and say, how could you be saying such a thing? <laughs> and I, look, I, I do understand why they're arguing against exams because it does seem unfair. Um, you know, some year 11s are being sent home, some not, you know, some aren't accessing. I mean, it is a nightmare. And, and in particular for the disadvantaged, it's worse for them because they don't necessarily have the support at home to be able to help them through. Um, so it is unfair. The problem is, is that um, I'm not sure what alternative there is. Teacher assessment would be a disaster as it was last year. That that has put to bed ever, ever the, the the idea that we should ever do teacher assessment. Well, the fiasco that was last year has convinced me that that should never be the case. Um, why though? So, why do you think teacher assessment is is the right way to do it? Because it's impossible to get consistency across the country. It's impossible to get consistency across a department, <laughs> let, and, and certainly even more across a school, let alone across an entire country. And it's not that teachers are, are bad people or anything. It's that, look, one teacher is assessing and he thinks, well, if, if, if the right questions come up on that day, and if the child has a good day, well, he could get two grades higher, <laughs> if you think <laughs> it that way. <laughs> and if the other teacher thinks well, actually, I'm not going to think about the best scenario. I'm going to think about the worst case scenario. Well, he gets two grades lower. And this will be happening across the country in all of these different subjects. So you don't have any consistency. So that really is extremely unfair. Um, the thing about exams is it's the fairest system. That, that is what I would say, despite it still being unfair. <laughs> that, 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 that's why I come down on exams. Yeah. I, I mean, some people would argue, well, exams, it, I mean, you, you, you can kind of cram in all that information like the night before, like I did actually, I was, I was really bad at this. I mean, I literally the night before I'd study for an exam and then kind of go in and, and hope for the best. But um, sometimes you can cram in that information, but the day after the exam, I'll never remember anything. And I, I don't, I still don't to this day. Um, I mean, are exams the, like, the best way to assess how, how well a child is developing? Because for some children, it's about like presentation, they're really good at like speaking and, um, and they might just struggle with exams. I mean, is it always the fairest way? Well, I just don't believe you when you say you crammed everything in, in the night before. It's not possible. You're underestimating just how much work your teachers did for you beforehand and all of the habits that they taught you of learning and all of the habits of all of the knowledge that you had built up over the years. Um, and all of that knowledge then came through for you. Now, yes, maybe you did quite a lot the night before, but the fact is that you had a whole load. I always talk about coat pegs in, the, in, in your head. And those coat pegs were there that have built up over years. And then at the last minute, you're throwing a few extra coats on those coat pegs in your brain. So you go in there and you're able to do X, Y, and Z. But you're only able to do that X, Y, and Z because of the many years, not just the year 11, the many years that you have been learning over that time. So, um, so that's, what's, that's what's being judged. Now, um, it's true that there are some children who don't do so well at exams and others who uh, fare better at them. You know, it, it is not an entirely fair system, but we need a system to be able to judge children that doesn't involve the teacher, you see, um, because of all the uh, discrepancies between in marking and all that. Like, that's just impossible. So we need a system. It isn't perfectly fair, but I think it's the only way. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, look, I wasn't a fan of exams either myself at school. I didn't like them. I was one of those kids who really hated them. You but, say that, you went Oxford. <laughs> yeah, but... You must have been good I at didn't it. like exams. I wasn't somebody who, um, who really thrived in them. I really didn't like them, and I got very nervous. I wasn't the kind of person who thought, yippee, I've got an exam now. Not at all. But, but then, you know, it's sort of like when you say about what happened to me, you, you know, and I say, well, every cloud has a silver lining. You've got to see every obstacle in life as an opportunity to learn something. So for those children, when we have children who don't like exams, we think, okay, well, let's help you with your exam technique. Let's practice this. Let's get over this hurdle. Um, because that's a, life, a lesson for life, really, to learn how to jump over difficulties and then achieve something at the end of it. It's, um, it's really thrilling. And actually, you find that those children who work really hard over years, I don't mean just the last minute, they work really hard and um, they, they, they get the right kind of teaching and support and so on, they will outperform their potential when it comes to their, their exams. Um, now, of course, there are, and, and you clearly are one of them, there are those children who you know, will do a lot of cramming at the end and uh, they're bright. And because they're bright, they manage to get away with, you know, enough to be able to do well enough. But um, obviously, if you had planned out your revision a lot more, you would have just got better grades than you did. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, and, and also it depends on the, the exam, you know, the quality of the exam. And there, I mean, uh, there's a discussion to be had. Some exams perhaps aren't as good as other exams at making sure that we're showing children are, are you know, have got a certain breadth of, of knowledge and so on. I mean, ideally what you want a school to do is teach that much stuff. And even though you're only being examined on that, the school teaches that. And then in the end, you get examined on that. That's what you would hope for. Now, the, the worry with exams and schools and the fact that schools are being held to account through Progress 8 and so on, is that rather than teach that, the schools get obsessed with just teaching that <laughs> because they know that, their reputation matters. And so they just want to drill the kids and they end up reading the same Shakespeare play from year seven, eight, nine, ten, over and over again <laughs> uh, so that they know it inside out, you know, by the time they get to year 11 GCSE exams. Uh, we certainly don't do that here because we believe very much in teaching them that. And then, it, you know, whatever they're examined on isn't what's important. It's what, it, it, it's, it, it's making sure that they have breadth of knowledge, you know? And, and I do think that can be a problem with exams. Uh, I'm not sure how we get around that. Um, it is, it, you know, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, I'm not, you know, exams bring their problems. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, there isn't a better system at the moment, uh, and it's quite it's quite remarkable because I was speaking to Gavin McCormack, who's a principal in Australia, and he, like the the government give them full autonomy of like, they, they go to the head teacher and they say, well, this is what, let's see what you've done. We'll pick a couple of books out and say, yeah, I, I agree with, I mean, I, I appreciate and I respect and I trust you. Like I, I will, will go with what you've said. I mean, obviously there's a danger of doing that, isn't there? Because some teachers may, or some of the senior leaders may be biased or whatever, like you said. So it's a difficult one, especially in the UK. But I mean, again, this goes back to my point. I think some people feel like, there, there isn't enough trust on teachers, you know, and, 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 and it works both ways because you, you look at the education secretary and we, we touched on this earlier, but politicians are politicians. They don't know anything about education. And it's like, yeah, you just got to get on with it hundred percent, but people that are giving you advice and guidance aren't education specialists and never been in a classroom. So I think that's where some of the frustration comes from, from senior leaders across the country is, is the fact that 
like the Secretary of Education has a time span of 18 to 24 months, you know? Um, I mean, what, what changes and what difference can you really make in, in two years? You know, I mean, the government has four years and they never hit target. So, I mean, what, what can they expect from the Secretary for Education? I mean, does somebody from education need to become the Secretary for Education? Uh, I really, I really think we should, who cares who's education secretary? <laughs> Just, I come back to this. I really don't care. You know, we, we used, because we were a free school, they used to send somebody from the DFE to, uh, you know, they send them to all free schools just to see how you're doing, to let you know how they think you might do if you get an Ofsted and so on. And, um, they kept begging me to do all sorts of things, you know, write a, and a, a self-evaluation form and I don't know all this stuff and they were saying you know Catherine you could get anywhere from a one to a four they kept saying and I said well you know great let them come and they kept saying yeah but we really want you to get a one so you need to do this you need to do this and I said there is no way I'm doing that that's <laughs> what I said I'm doing what's right for my school and I don't care what the education secretary say the, the education secretary says I don't care what Ofsted say I don't care what the DFE says I am doing what is right for my school I mean look they don't know my school. So who cares? I think too many of us in, in positions of leadership are terrified by these bodies and we want to please them. And then often we can misunderstand what they're asking us to do as well. And so we end up just spending all our time trying to tick offset boxes, DFE boxes, you know, who cares? Look yeah. at the children in front of you. Look at your staff in front of you. What do they need? What will make your school better? <laughs> and then just do it and ignore the, the powers, ignore the politicians. I, I don't even, I don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> just, you've got to think like that because you've got to own your school and own your vision and have a vision. If your vision is only we need to move from good to outstanding, or if your vision is we need to get a progress eight of one, that is not a vision. Right? A vision is what do you want these children to be? How, what kind of impact do you want to have on their lives? How happy do you want your staff to be? What do you want this place to feel like? What's the culture going to be? That's what is important to you. And I have to say that, you know, the education secretary is never going to talk about any of that. Who cares? Ignore all these people. <laughs> Ignore them. Just look at what's inside your school. Be in your school every day. That's a key thing for head teachers. They need to be in their schools every day. They need to be with their senior teams, meeting with them constantly. I meet with my senior team every morning at 7 a.m. And we discuss what happened yesterday, literally. And I have my, I have my, my, my pad there. That's the stuff that happened today. And I've written down, one, I have to write to talk about this. Two, I have to talk about that. Blah, 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 blah. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to meet and we're going to go through the stuff that I've written down. And my senior team will also say, and then this happened and then that happened. And what can we do about this? And what can we do about that? And then we'll go away and we do it during the day. And then another list is created. And then tomorrow we go, we, we do the same thing because it's all about what we do day in, day out. Do I care what Gavin Williamson is saying? No. I mean, <laughs> I care what my, my, my deputy heads are telling me. That's what's going to tell me about how to make the school a better place, you know? I mean, I think like senior leaders have got to that point in some respects, a lot of them anyway, have got to that point where they're just like, well, I don't care anymore. I don't care what the education system tells me. I'm going to do what's best for my kids and my schools. I mean, how dangerous is that if, if more schools, if that's a unanimous thing and schools just literally cut off like um, sort of advice from, from like the people in power? Is it dangerous? 
thing is, is that I don't think that anyone is out there listening to every word that Gavin Williamson says and says, what do we need to do today? What has Gavin told us what to do? He's not telling us what to do. I I do think they're not listening. I do think they're listening to Ofsted. So I do think they're thinking, what do I need to do to tick the Ofsted boxes? And I also think that's a mistake, to be honest. I mean, the thing is, I think there's so much room for misunderstanding. And people end up doing the wrong sorts of things because they're distracted. I used the word distraction before. Don't get distracted by what people are telling you and fights with the wrong people. Spend your time in your classrooms with your teachers, figuring out what needs to happen. So one of the things we're addressing at the moment at Michaela is challenge in the lessons, in, the, in, in top sets, really. We're looking at challenging the top sets. Now, why have we decided that we need to look at that? Because we've been around the lessons and we've thought, you know what? There's not enough challenge across the board in the top set. So let's do lots of CPD on this. So we're doing loads of CPD at the moment on challenge. People are taking ideas. They're going back to their classrooms. They're trying them out. They're thinking in different ways. We're having discussions with staff on this. And we're moving the school in a particular direction. Now, Gavin Williamson hasn't talked to me about challenge. Ofsted haven't talked to me about challenge. I, I don't know what Ofsted says. I don't care. I've looked at my school and I thought, what do we need to do in, 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 in November uh, 2020? And this is the thing that we're doing at the moment. I mean, last year we would have been doing something else. I mean, you've got to be versatile and flexible, always willing to change your mind about things. And you move with this kind of flexibility in your school, which is why we meet every day, because that allows us to change our minds, make a decision, do things like this. Oh, no, we need to do it that way. Or we tried it that way yesterday. It didn't work. Let's try it this way and so on. Um, You don't want to get too stuck in your ways. Uh, yeah, I just, I just think in education, we're all too bogged down with, um, with, uh, with the sort of stuff that you're talking about. And I, I just think, I just think it's the kids. That's all that matters. Yeah. Are the days of Ofsted and then leaderboards like dated? Is it time to just move on now and just let schools get on with what's best for their school and their kids? Well, I don't mind there being an Ofsted. I mean, I do think that it ultimately, I mean, I've always argued against Ofsted because I think too many head teachers spend their time trying to tick the boxes for Ofsted. Ideally, what I would like is for there to be no Ofsted, but for schools to be open and transparent at all times for visitors at any time. So uh, you can't have, if you're not going to have an Ofsted, you have to be open. So we are open to anyone visiting us and children take people around on tours and they go around and see any lesson. I think schools should be open to that. And if schools are open to being visited anytime by anyone and the teachers can be visited at any time by anyone, then if they're open to that, then you cannot have an Ofsted. But you can have it both ways. Uh, I would prefer the transparency um, because then uh, people there isn't this closed shop where you're wondering what's going on. It's one of the reasons why I think the public don't have much respect for us is that it's very difficult for them to see what we do. Um, and I wish they could see, um, I, I just think it would make the whole system far more accountable and it would then give us reason not to have Ofsted. And I do think Ofsted is a bad thing. 
Yeah. Um, it is yeah like you said I think one of the one of the big problems is like schools just end up ticking off said boxes opposed to what's doing what's best for the school and for the kids and I, and, and, and again like, I just think it is I mean in some respects I do think it's a little bit dated personally I mean I'm not a teacher myself and I'm not a senior leader so I mean my, my, my opinion is it's pretty limited in terms of what, what I can offer but I do feel it's a bit dated and it's, it's I think it's, it's about time where I mean, I, I, leaderboards, like when we talk about leaderboards, obviously you've got a phenomenal school and you haven't got worry attracting quality staff because people want to work at Michaela. But you talk about schools that are, are sort of rated RI or, or um, inadequate and you talk about the difficulties they have to try to turn that school around. It's difficult enough to try and, uh, try and get parents on board and, and kids to remain like sort of aligned with, with where the school is going. But like to try actually uh, try attract teachers that are of good quality to come to a school that is failing is always a challenge in itself. And sometimes by having leaderboards, you kind of label those schools and make it that much more difficult for those bad schools to get to get better. You know, um, so I mean that's where I stand with leaderboards. You assume that I can tell you it's very difficult when you're starting out with a new school that uh, most teachers uh, think you're some kind of pariah and wouldn't touch you with a barge pole. Uh, trying to find teachers then very hard. Now it's got a bit easier, but I wouldn't say it's super easy. Uh, a lot of teachers are very reluctant to go and work in free schools. A lot of teachers are reluctant to, uh, come and work in a school like Michaela because of the, um, because of the backlash that they get, you know, a lot of my teachers, their friends think that they're weird and so on for working (laughs) here. They even lose friends, you know, it's not easy. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, uh, we have an easy time finding staff, not at all. Um, but you do have a point that when a school is trying to turn itself round, it can be hard, but I find that there's also quite a lot of teachers who enjoy being in those kinds of environments. I was one of them. I wanted to turn around a failing school. I enjoyed, um, being in difficult circumstances. So, and there are, there, there are lots of teachers like that. So I don't think it's necessarily impossible. Um, it's hard though. I mean, I'm in education recruitment. So, I mean, I, the amount of times I've had teachers saying, I only want a good or outstanding school, you know? I mean, right. okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like seven or eight out of 10 times, I mean, a teacher would say, look, I don't want to work in a failing school. I, I just don't want the pressure. But I mean, it, I guess it, like, you get into teaching to make a difference to kids, don't you? So, I mean, you'd question what, why they're in teaching, but you know what? Everyone to the, is on their own journey. So, yes. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I take what you're saying. But I mean, all I would say is, look, I was in a very difficult position. Couldn't, you know, I didn't have lots of people applying for jobs and so on. Not at all. Uh, but you do what you can and then you support your, your teachers and you develop them and you, you do what you can with what you've got. I mean, the thing is, you keep talking about fairness and you want things to be fair. And so do I. But they never will be fair. <laughs> um, exams won't be fair. Recruitment won't be fair. Look. We have a school without any trees. We have no grass. We have no sports hall. We don't even have a car park for the staff. <laughs> I have to use an old car park, the one that we've got, to put the children in. And even then, we don't have it. It's not big enough to hold all the children at once. We have to schedule it so they're out at different times. So we wouldn't be able to put them all in there at the same time. Now, we're also right next to the train tracks. So when my heads of year talk to the kids, they can barely be heard because the trains make so much noise. Same thing with my teaching, actually, for all the classrooms on that side. You can barely hear anybody think. This is not the ideal building. And I could go around saying it's not fair because I would say that 99% of schools out there have better buildings than we do. But I don't because in the same way as I'm not going to get pulled down by what Gavin Williamson might say, and I'm not going to get pulled down by what Ofsted is demanding, and I'm not going to get pulled down by the fact that we've got exams or Progress 8 or whatever it is, 
I'm also not going to get pulled down by the building. I think the best thing that you can do in life is rather than talk about whether or not it's fair or unfair all the time and get distracted by that, you just take what you've got, the lot you've got, and you make the most of it. That's what I've done. And I could have gone on about how, because it really was unfair, you know? Um, I've, I've had, you know, as I say, threats and, you know, abuse and an awful time. And I could have said, it's life is unfair. Um, but I didn't. That's why I was able to make a huge problem into a great success. Um, and if when you're in that problematic situation, you spend, if I'd spent my time saying, this isn't fair, why have they done this to me? Rah, 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 I could have done that, but then I wouldn't have built the school. So uh, I, I would just say, ignore that those niggles that you feel when people feel like that and just try and get out there and do what you can with what you've got. Absolutely. I mean, you're right. Life isn't fair. I mean, and, and life has its obstacles and, and you do struggle. I mean, like this year of COVID, I started my own business last year and like obviously COVID hit five months in and I was like, oh God, school, schools have shut. I'm completely out of, out of work now. But um, I mean, I came up with a podcast. You, like, you adapt, you, you become innovative and you think of better ways to like uh, attract customers or like in your, in your case, like get, get with the children. And, like, and that's what, it, it's a test of character, isn't it? And you're right. I mean, it's very easy to blame other people and it's, it's, the harder thing to do is take responsibility and say, you know what, life isn't fair, but ultimately, like, I, I can do the best I can. But a hundred percent, I completely respect where you come from, and you have you you're you're a, you're a proof of that, aren't you? Like, I mean, you you literally brought a new school into a deprived area, and you, you've made it into one of the best schools in the country, and and achieving fantastic results. But I mean, not everyone has that much like power as as you have had, you know. Like, I mean, there's still loads of areas in London, in particular, that are so deprived, and we don't have like super head teachers that come in like you and and transform those areas and give children that hope, you know. And and yeah, it's not fair, and, and ultimately, it, what can we do? Like, life is not fair, but we still want to try and give these children the best opportunity to to have a chance in life, you know. And yeah, it's, it, like your school's doing really well, but it'd be nice if it can be re- like replicated across the country, opposed to having this broken system where the disadvantages get more disadvantage and the advantage get more advantage, you know. And um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard because there is no right answer. I don't know what the answer is, but I, it's well, quite- I'll tell you what the answer is. What's the that? answer is each one of us doing our very best to do what's best for the children. That, that's the answer. The answer is to just get on with the job and do it as best as we can and be open to changing our minds. That's all we can do. Um, you know, that's all you can do. You have a little life. You have one life. <laughs> and you've got a short time where you can have impact. You do what you can in that time to yeah. be the best person that you can be. Um, that, that's all one can do. But if each one of us does it, we will have huge impact. But that, that, that's my solution anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That teaching profession just needs to come collectively together and just say, you know what, screw everybody else. We're here to make a difference in these kids and that's it. Like ultimately, that's the job. And I almost feel like, do you feel like you'd, you'd kind of have that power reinstated if there's more autonomy? Like as in, like senior leaders had more control of how they can like manipulate the curriculum for their kids? But they can. I mean, look, there is a national curriculum, but they can do all sorts of things. I do all sorts of things. They can. They just need to be bold. They just need to do what's right for their kids. And that means ignoring the powers that be and ignore the distractions and just look at your school and do what's right for your school. That, that's why that's, the solution is there. Um, they can. They can do what you're saying. <laughs> you just need to find the courage and do it. 
I mean, not, not everyone's as outspoken as you, Catherine. I mean, like you've got 50,000. Don't be outspoken. Do it quietly. Just do it in your school. Do what's right for your school. You don't have to tell yeah. anyone. Just do it quietly. And you know what? There are. There are, a lot, there are head teachers out there right now doing the right things for their schools and they're not shouting about it. They're just quietly getting on with it. Absolutely. I mean, just just kind of um, point out, I mean, I think the teaching profession is doing a phenomenal job at the moment. I mean, we, we talk about doctors getting six-figure salaries and stuff, but teachers have been saving kids' lives this, throughout this whole year and keeping schools open. You are on the front line and you are doing a remarkable job. And ultimately, it's why I started this podcast is to create awareness for what, all you're doing. I mean, like, I don't want to, I know you're a busy lady, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but is there anything else that you'd really want to add on? Like, is there something that you feel that the teaching profession just needs to hear to kind of like help them, support them throughout this period? Yeah, I mean, it is a very hard period and I do feel for teachers. I always feel for teachers because, you know, when I said the system was broken, I, I meant the system. I didn't mean teachers. I think teachers are often victims in this system. And um, I think the only way we change the system is bit by bit, brick by brick. You know, you, you, a thousand mile journey, you know, uh, uh, starts with a single step. That, that needs to be our, the way of thinking. And don't get too down, is what I'd say. Just think of what your goal is. Keep the blinkers on. Just keep looking ahead. Keep going. Find somebody to support, help. You know, it may be somebody in school. It might be somebody outside of school. And you just keep going. And look at the small wins. Look at the child that smiled today or the child learned something, whatever it is. You know, celebrate the small wins and feel happy about them. Because the greatest thing about teaching is that we change children's lives and we make the world a better place. And we're really lucky to have a job like that. Gosh, if I was a banker, I don't know what I'd do with myself. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't want to get up in the morning. Whereas as it is, I get to change children's lives. And that's a real privilege, I'd say. And teachers can sometimes forget how privileged we are to um, be in a job where we can have impact on the world. So remember that and remember just... Find the small wins every day and feel happy about those wins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Catherine, you're a remarkable lady. I know um, we, we touched on it and I know after 2010, you went for a bit of a difficult time. And I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know where you get this courage because you did get threats and there was racist comments and there was sexist comments, weren't there? That was quite, quite a lot was thrown at you and you didn't know, necessarily know what was going to happen with your career. I mean, like, where, did this, where does this strength come from? Like, I mean, you have got tremendous amounts of strength. Like, where, where does this come from? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it comes from all the children that I've known in my career that um, I saw failed by the system. And um, I've always been inspired by them. I still am. You know, I love children. I just love them. And um, I love education. And I want to make it as good as possible. And so I suppose I'm just driven to do that. And I just keep going. Um, and that's what we all need to do. Is what I always say to the children in, at assembly. You know, you just keep going. You've got to. Um, you want to be able to reach 95 and look back at your life and say, I had impact, you know, on the world, that I did something. Uh, and the only way you manage to do something is you keep on going. So <laughs> just keep going. That's what I say to everybody. Keep on going and you'll, you'll get there. And you're probably a little bit relieved that um, you don't have to actually retrain PhD students this year because they're, they're literally getting taught how to teach from the front. I mean, is that, is that the better way to do it? Do they need to do that going forward? Well, certainly I've seen that on Twitter. 
where a number of people are saying, oh gosh, uh, I'm having my deaths in rows and actually it's working a treat. So I'm pleased to see that people are discovering that because um, it is, it's a great way to teach. Deaths in rows, best way. <laughs> yeah, do you have any advice for them? Like to finish off, like, do you have any advice for anyone doing the teacher training this year? Gosh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. Um, gosh, it must be very hard. I don't know. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's so difficult, this situation. Look, all I can say to everybody is fingers crossed, you know, we get back to normal as soon as possible, really. You know, uh, you just, it's what I said. Blinkers on. You've got to do what you've got to do, whether you're new, whether you're older, whether, whatever the situation is. You just got to see what's my goal for the day. Get to the end of the day. Start the next day. Goal for the day. Get the end of the day, etc. And always go to bed before 10 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, I'm at that age now where I can't get past ten o'clock anyway. But um, but I, I, I won't take you. I won't keep. I won't keep you any longer. But I mean, I just want to say thanks for coming on, and you're, you're a remarkable lady. I know. I know you've obviously been through one hell of a journey, and um, and not everyone's going to agree with everything you say. But ultimately, I respect. I hands down respect what you do and what you're about because it's so evident that you are very passionate about education and you want to make a difference. You know, and ultimately that's why you get into teaching. So nobody can take that away from you. I don't care what anyone says or disagrees. Like you are you are trying to make a difference and it's not like you're trying to take an easy route out like you're working with some deprived areas and you are trying to actually make a difference to these kids so my hat goes off to you Catherine and I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your journey with us thank you thank you for having me no worries okay. all right then thanks everyone for watching thanks Catherine for coming on and guys if, as usual if you did like it please give us a like and a subscribe um, but until the next episode Take care and keep safe. Thanks.